you can whisper that you can put a little pink bow on it you can um have your four-year-old sing it in the song it doesn't matter because that's the law of god which, which will provoke sinners to wrath Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, here today with Matt Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of Christ Anglican Church in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. How are you guys doing today? Wonderful. Great, Nick. You know, this is episode 51 of the pod, you guys, and since we took a week <laughs> off of Christmas, that means it's been one year of standing firm in the podcast verse. Has it been everything you expected or hoped it would be? And it, more. it has been more, yeah. More. <laughs> more. All, right. all more. Just more. Your wildest dreams come true. That's right. <laughs> well, one of the big stories last week in the Christian world was the election of Megan Rohrer as Bishop of the Sierra Pacific Synod of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, the ELCA. The reason anyone cares about this story is that this person, and I couldn't quite nail down in my research if Rohr is now identifying as a man or intersex or asexual or what, um, this person was born a woman. It could be a gender nonconforming. Um, exactly. Something like this. She began identifying as a lesbian and now simply identifies as transgender using the pronouns they and them, which makes writing articles about this person very difficult. <laughs> Of course, the national media is hailing this development as wonderful and progressive in the life of the church. We, of course, have talked about the disconnects between transgenderism and the biblical worldview before, but Rora recently tweeted something that I think is worth focusing on for today's episode. She wrote this, the first council of Nicaea's first action was to try to limit the leadership roles of trans pastors and bishops. I'm grateful, she writes, that the Lutherans of the Sierra Pacific Synod of the ELCA are beginning to dismantle this and some of the other hurdles BIPOC and LGBTQ pastors encounter. Now, presumably she's referring to Canon 1 from the council, which states that eunuchs can be priests unless they castrate themselves. In other words, if their castration was involuntary, the church allowed them to serve in ministry. An assault on one's own body, however, was disqualifying. So guys, a lot going on here. Transgenderism, eunuchs, <laughs> bishops, creeds, councils of the church. What's well, at stake? Where do we start? Well, I, I mean, before we even go there, I, I didn't think that she could surpass the Lady Gaga Eucharist that <laughs> she wrote about 10 years ago. She put the entire um, the entire album to uh, rewrote for the Eucharistic prayer. And so, you know, I thought she had reached the height of her um of the profession at that point, but, but evidently I was, I was, my sights were too, too low. <laughs> Our sights were, now she's a bishop. Is it, um, is it a, I mean, uh, biologically, I, I'm looking at the picture. And I, I can't, is it, I think it's a female. Is that correct? Is it a female just, just saying born a woman? A yes. Okay. She's born a woman. All right, all right. All right. But she's acting as a man. Or we just don't know. We don't. I don't. I didn't read that anywhere. I just read okay. that she's identifying as transgender. Okay. But Whatever can you repeat your? I'm sorry, Nick. I couldn't get the the chorus of um <laughs> of the uh, bad romance, uh, the Eucharistic prayer written to bad romance out of my head while you were asking that question. Can you repeat it, please? Because I um now that I've I've I have been recentered, uh, I can be more more present. 
We should say that in addition to the Lady Gaga that's in JD's head, we are definitely having some transmission slash technological issues. So we were going to we're going to work around them as well as we can. I just said that we have a lot going on here: uh, transgenderism, eunuchs, bishops, creeds, and councils of the church, whether they're trustworthy. Uh, what's at stake? What? is going on where do we start the conversation about nicaea and transgenderism and what's going on in the church today well it was hard not to be transported back to when the da vinci code came out and this has been mentioned in a number of different articles when dan brown brown um sort of implied that uh you know constantine and a bunch of uh angry white men got together and created christianity in order to subjugate well i guess all everyone else um and that was kind of the implication of uh of the da vinci code which makes for uh interesting reading um, but has very little connection to historical fact uh, as we as has been uh, transmitted down to us. And so that was where I began was that there is this narrative and it makes sense if you want to overthrow the where we are, the status quo now, well, then you the further back you can go to point to an error, um, the better, you know, so. Um, you know, we used to argue about the Reformation, you know, who had the right to, to say what was definitively Luther or Cranmer or Calvin, you know, carries a lot of weight, right? Well, now you can go even further back to Nicaea and Constantine and say, this is where it all began was this, you know, what did uh, Beth Allison Barr say, the subjugation of women, the subjugation of trans, the subjugation of the world began back when Constantine saw his, supposedly saw his, um, the vision, you know, um, that, that converted him. And so, I think that's um, it's not a new move. Um, I thought it was quite uh, bold. In fact, like you're going to you know, come out swinging it to root um, the modern movement, the modern identity movement and trans transgenderism in um, a misunderstanding or a or a conspiracy theory back in the fourth century. I mean, that's that's really um, that's 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 a, a bold play, you know, um, so it's we should probably clarify just you know, historically that. Canon one of, of the Council of Nicaea was not aimed at trans, transgender people. The point seems to be that some were castrating themselves for purposes of, of chastity, like, you know, right. taking seriously, you know, you know, if a limb causes you to sin, cut it off. Yes. And say, so, so let's cut this thing off. And, and that's a, you know, obviously. The sin at work in your members. Right, also. right. So obviously the church doesn't want that to go on so please don't mutilate yourselves i mean it wasn't aimed at it at, at transgender uh, people but i suppose it, it, it could be applied to them if i mean although it's, it's a stretch even there because canon one is talking about so i mean i don't know too many trans people who've actually had operations who do the operations themselves do you, do you, do anyone, do you know it's also anyone? specifically <laughs> talking about ministry in the church this this idea that a certain class of people might be excluded from the ordained ministry of a church means that they're being subjugated or oppressed. It's right. Not true. Right. That's right. Well, yeah, it's it's interesting to me how prevalent the the eunuch um, has become as an image of the transgender person. I just finished uh, Preston Sprinkle's book called Embodied, which um, he ends up landing the plane, you know, in the right places by saying that he he thinks that 
know, the Christmas connection between biological sex and gender and that we should strive to, you know, unify that even in the most sort of gender dysphoric person. Again, we don't want to talk about that book, except for the fact that the eunuch is prominently displayed as a as or prominently discussed as a, a stand in for the modern um, sort of transgender person. And I think that's quite interesting um, uh, move, because as Jesus says, you know, some are born eunuch, some some are made eunuch, some, you know, choose to be eunuchs. And so there's this there's this analogy that I think, you know, has been written about. And and I think pastorally speaking, there's probably some benefit to that understanding that there are sort of um, people more or less driven by their sexual desires as a result of their biology. You know, I mean, if you were if you were castrated as a young boy, you know, you have a different adult life than a than a man otherwise would, you know, so you can at least appreciate some differences there. But I think that this this one to one correlation with the sort of modern trans movement is a anachronism, first of all. And second of all, um, doesn't appreciate the consistent Christian witness, Judeo-Christian witness over against what has always existed, which is a we, we've talked about before, which is a dissolution of the binary, as it were, a pagan insistence on the the unity of all truth. And which, of course, what could be more unified than a um, gender nonconforming you know, man and woman and whatever other gender I am in one body. Um, and that is the the consistent witness that that um, is enshrined in and through the the Christian Judeo-Christian scriptures, which of course is upheld by and uh, propagated by the Nicene Creed, you know, in, in, in its, in its outline. But I I thought it was, it was really, um, you know, not, not just an interesting move, but it's, it's one that will become more and more prevalent is this, this analogy of the eunuch um, and the modern transgender person as, um, as sort of a, a you know, the, the way that we can understand Jesus and in interacting with it. And I think it's, it's, um, it's, it's a category error. And I think it, it's a mistake, uh, but that's, but that's what we're going to hear more and more frequently. Well, I mean, I think, I think Nicaea and other councils, especially the further back you go uh, in, insofar as people know of them, are going to be have, are going to have to be cast in a negative light. I mean, that's the you touched on it a minute ago, JD. But the early on, the greatest threat to the church was Gnosticism. That's right. Um, and this uh, idea that that the, the radical the radical uh, chasm between between material the, the material world and the spirit, the flesh and the spirit uh, that Gnostics um, asserted, and that, that really to to have to be truly spiritual you have to um they, they various gnostics had various methods for doing this uh, get past the material in some way and and live in accordance with the inner spark the inner light the inner essence of who you are um which is really divine it's really connected with the with the uh, aeons and the and the demiurges um in the spiritual realm um and and so so the idea of jesus in the flesh embodied in the flesh in the human flesh uh was really difficult for them and and then and then having died and escaped the prison house of the flesh coming back and being raised from the dead in the body in which he's going to go in which he was in which he ascended into heaven and it's still in the body that was very difficult for, for gnostics to deal with and so um those are the first few things that the gnostics had to had to do away with when they came in when they tried to inf- infiltrate the church and make Christianity more of an inner religion, a religion of finding the self and, and secret methods whereby you could find the self and find the true inner spark and the true inner light. Um, and that's all back. That That is, I mean, yes. you, that, that you were, we're basically reading the script of, of modern uh, trans Christianity 
or uh, you know, the LGBT understanding of, of the self. And, 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 you know, we're also, you know, <laughs> we talked about this before as well, but the Enneagram and several other methods by which Christians try to find out who they truly are and live into that. That's all, that's all a reintroduce, reintroduction of Gnosticism into the church. Interesting. Canon one, therefore, is not anti-eunuch, it's pro-body. It's, yeah. it's saying that God has given you this body, sinful though it may be, and mutilating it is an affront against God's creation in you. And it's an acknowledgement of a gift from God rather than a curtailing of something that the Lord is at work doing. That's right. Yeah. I mean, again, it goes, it goes back to this great distinction, you know, the creature and the creator and that the one that is blurred in all forms of paganism and that includes Gnosticism. And so if, if the divine is found within and within your body, even, you know, um, cause you know, there's various forms of, of pagan worship, you know, it wasn't just escape because if your body can be escaped then it can also be mutilated and, and, you know, used at your discretion, you know, to your, nothing, so you can be exactly. And so you have sort of two extremes, you know, the Stoics and the Epicureans, but you still have this fundamental idea that the divine is part of the world within which we live, you know, that the spirit can be, found that there's a that there's an ultimate um uh you know that god is part of you know panentheism that god is part of the world and so if that's your starting point well then it's not surprising that god will speak to you from within you will find him it them they within and the way that you commune with this god is some form of creature worship you know and so that's where we find the um the the great offense which continues down to this day is that you know your body is not your own you know and that's part of what this canon is about too is that you know god has redeemed the sinful uh, realities of your life and yes you will remain sinful but you are not given freedom to uh, mutilate yourself as you said nick um and you know even if it was for good measure you know his origin reportedly may have done you know there's arguments about that but that he allegedly um you know it's like, <laughs> allegedly that's right um and and so i think you know what we're going to see matt you're exactly right is that creedal christianity you know people say why well, I, I believe in the creeds well the implications of them will continue to um to be uh more and more uh sort of offensive as people get further and further away i mean um the self-revelation of god as father you know of course we don't believe that means that he's a man but he's he has given that appellation and that has a connotations for how he's to be understood you know in and through the world you know what does that mean for for us in our own fatherhood? What does that mean for the concept of, you know, men um, and women and all of these things that we have in, you know, in the Nicene Creed, much less the Athanasian Creed, you know, which is also part of our, you just read the Athanasian Creed without having like a cold sweat, uh, you know, trickle down your neck and, um, and you're not reading it rightly, you know, because it's very clear and very um, direct, we should say. Uh, but, you know, that, that's what I always find funny when people say, you know, I don't want to uh, quibble about, um, about, uh, you know, theological argumentation, vain disputations about various theological arguments. I just want to stick to the creed. You know, it's like, well, we have to look at what the creed protects because it is it is a rather wide boundaries, but they are still boundaries. I mean, I, I tell people this all the time. Like I grew up in a church that which I loved and I have no negative associations with it, except for the fact that it had very little in the way of theological bounding. Like I didn't know what the Nicene Creed really was um, in high school because we never said it. No one taught about it and it wasn't part of our worship. And so there were some, we should say, odd ideas floating around. I mean, you know, always we always had the Bible. So that was at the very least a, a, 
of an anchor, but um, you know, we didn't have some of the boundaries that the creed provides. And so when I was in college and was introduced to the Nicene Creed through Rich Mullins's uh, singing of it, and I thought that he had written it, I was like, wow, this guy's brilliant. Like this is an amazing comprehensive statement. Um, it was incredibly freeing for me because I said, well, this is what, you know, what is the Vincentian canon? What's always believed everywhere by at all times by everyone, you know, um, that, that there was such a freedom to 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 let go of my need to recreate all this and to just absorb the wisdom of the ages. And that will be continually offensive in every generation for people who find those edges to come up against where they would like them to be. And in particular, this bishop, uh, Bishop Rohr, is, um, you know, finds it unfortunate that the uh, creed um, excluded the, um, you know, the, the eunuchs because she takes that as a stand in for transgender people. And so now we are going to um, finally get down to the root of what's true um, as long as we can get those angry white misogynist transphobes out of the way, um, you know, and so that's, that's going to be more and more the play, I think, as, as we, as we walk further down this line, because people will try I mean, I'm glad at the very least a bishop in a who maintains some sort of um, fidelity to the tradition. And yet um, that tradition is not going to be able to be interpreted in any way that would have any sort of semblance to how it has been um, in order for it to maintain, in, in order for it to be shoehorned into this modern, the, the modern apostasy. In, in today's terms, it is really offensive that, that God, who, of course, if anything is a woman, would, would choose to be enfleshed in male flesh in a man's body and soul and mind and not change that, you know? <laughs> yeah. I'm reading a book right now. I'm reading a book called right. when God, when God was a woman right now, I'm reading this. And that, um, the, the thesis is basically that the Jews with their angry, you know, phallic centric um, misogynistic <laughs> idea of God uh, destroyed all of the peace loving, environmentally conscious uh, goddess oh, yeah. worshipers. And that was just right. perpetuated through Christianity and that now we're at the cusp. This is this is the thesis is that now we are at the cusp of finally being able to rewrite the sordid tale of misogynistic sort of Western civilization and a return, goddess, a return right. to the goddess. And it's um, this isn't a this is like a scholarly book. It's not a joke. It's not a joke at all. It's it's a no, real I thing. Some, I remember reading that and not that book, not that book, not, not that book, but that that uh, theory in, in college, uh, even way back in the 90s. But yeah, that's the, the that goes back to what you're saying also about you know, Beth Allison Barr and this trans bishop. It was always like this golden age before the men took over. <laughs> that's right. This, this golden, unfallen Eden, really, is what they're doing. This kind of Edenic state. And in the case of the woman who wrote the book you're talking about, it was the Edenic state when everyone was worshiping the goddess. And then the men came in and shoved the goddess down and oppressed her. And then with Beth Allison Barr, it's the Edenic state of the medieval church, for goodness sake. Yes. Or, yeah. Well, it's even, you know, <laughs> it's even goes so far as um, I was reminded when I was reading this, um, the similarities with if you've read Ibram Kendi's How to Be anti-racist book. He talks about a strain of theology, which I was unfamiliar with. It's quite radical. I think he would at least acknowledge that uh, posits that white people, as so defined, uh, were actually the, the descendants of the devil and that the fall created white people and that white people were the, um, you know, this, this, this idea that they were le legitimately agents of Satan. <laughs> like this is not a joke, like not a, that's not like a, 
overstatement of, and he, I believe in the book, I haven't read it for a while now, but he says something like, you know, I never fully embraced that, that strain of theology. I was like, well, thank you for qualifying that. But, but it's a similar idea is that there is a, a reaction and a rebellion and a provocation to wrath when the law of God is spoken into the world and the law of God, you know, as, as Philip Carey of the Luther class, the, which everyone should listen to uh, law and gospel and reformation by Philip Carey and the teaching company. Uh, when he came and spoke at the church where Nick and I were serving um, for, previously, he said, you know, a shorthand for the law of God is just anything God says, you know? And so, and so if God says it and you don't like him, well, then it's going to make you very angry. And if you trust and know him, then you're going to, um, it still may make you angry, but you're at least going to know the source and have to deal with that. And I think this is another instance of this is that we didn't write it. We didn't, uh, you know, Jesus could have come down as a woman. I mean, Jesus could have, you know, God could have manifested, God could have, could have done all sorts of things that he didn't do. And yet he has done what he has and he has given us not to amend it, but to proclaim it. And that's where, you know, there's all sorts of edges that come up against the the boundaries of my own life that are very chafing, you know, if not, if not straight up uh, enraging me at times. And yet that's where the gospel comes in. That's what we talk about all the time is that the law will provoke wrath and will come, come at you and will ultimately kill you. You know, there's not, you can't, you can sure deal. I mean, go ahead, do away with Nicaea if you want, you know, no creed, but Christ, no law, but love. Well, where are you getting this creed from, right? You're getting it from Christ who was enfleshed as a man, you know, deal with that, like deal with it. I mean, the good and the bad and whatever case you may want to um, make of it. And, and we can't change these facts that there is, there is uh, pushback and anger uh, because, you know, as I was talking to someone the other day, they were talking about, oh, it was in this book um, that I was reading. And I mentioned before about how, what type of church Jesus would have, you know, Jesus's church would be full of all of the um, eunuchs in the world. You know, Jesus would hang out with all that. I was like, do we forget that he was crucified? You know, I mean, his church was very, very small at the end of his life before his crucifixion. And it was not full of all of his adoring fans, you know? And so- out of his way to make people angry sometimes. Well, I mean, he certainly wasn't always meek and mild. Um, and and again, it's not that I want, I, I have had this conversation with many people, like I am trying to be, if you can believe it, dear listener, um, as non-provocative and as non-confrontational as possible. Like I really do attempt to not provoke unnecessary wrath. And yet, as I mentioned to someone, I've never been able to whisper the law of God into this arena without it being um, heard as a as a direct offense against the the personhood, against the honor, the dignity of whoever you're speaking against. So you can whisper as sweetly as you want. There is nothing but a male and a, you know, male and female created he them, right? From the old King James. Well, look out, you're getting kicked off Twitter, hater. You know, like you can whisper that, you can put a little pink bow on it, you can um, have your four-year-old sing it in a song. It doesn't matter because that's the law of God, which, which will provoke sinners to wrath. And that's according to Paul by design. You know, this is what this is what is supposed to happen because it's not intended that which promised you life is actually going to kill you. You know, your idea that you could now become a man or a woman or a gender non-conforming queer or whatever the case may be, you thought that was going to be the end of it? Well, it's not. That's just the further uh, sort of alienation that um, a life outside the gospel will bring. And and so this is where we find ourselves, that I think, you know, anything that that is bound 
you know, any, anything that carries the thus saith the Lord and the creed, we don't believe is divine, but we think is rest upon divine revelation. You know, I mean, the creed, you know, it's not part of the Bible, but it's derived directly from the Bible. And to the extent that, you know, we, we interpret it in light of that. And so, you know, it's not surprising that people are going to go after that. You know, people are going to go after, um, you know, have already tried to put the scripture in tatters. And so now if we can get the creeds and, and they can be more malleable. Then we can, we can continue to, to create the world in our image, which of course is our primary, our primary sin. And so, you know, I, I don't see a lot of um, fruitful dialogue that's going to come out of this other than the continued uh, division of uh, people who are, are sort of slain and reborn by the power of the spirit through the law and the gospel and people who are continuing to um, try to, to make uh, the Bible and now the creed say something that um, they just, they just simply don't. Yeah. Adding to the offense, I think we can make a pretty good stab at why God became man and specifically as a male. And that's because of the old Testament analogies or typology of God and his church um, as husband and wife as Israel is the bride of Yahweh. And so now, of course, he's going to come and take his bride. So he's going to be coming as, as a man um, and his bride will, you know, love him and submit to him and, and, and turn to him and, and be joined to him as one body, which turns out, it turns out to be the church. So uh, not only do we have, not only is, is the creed offensive just in the sense that it's, it has this the gender binary there as, as, as part of, uh, and then God becoming in, in flesh as a male. But but the reason he became in flesh as a male is is because of the of the gender binary, which he created as a as a as a type of Christ in his church and, and the yes. gospel. I mean, the level of cultural offense is just uh, that that Christianity at its very basic core yeah. um, causes in this world is pretty amazing. I know mean, you don't, I, I, five or t- six years ago, 10 years ago, I wouldn't have seen it. But now that the trans movement is so uh, out front and now that egalitarianism is becoming such a big thing in, in the evangelical realm, as well as in the ACA, of course, um, you can see just how just at its essential fundamental level, it makes people it enrages people. Um, this is why you have people arguing. And we talked about this before, but you just the you know and hierarchy between male and female in Genesis one and two. You can't. It has to be that the uh, whatever form of patriarchy there is, it began necessarily in, in Genesis three. And so this kind of effacing of the whole beautiful drama of God and his and his and his people that is typified in marriage begins at the beginning in Genesis three or with, with the effacing of Genesis two and, and grounding in Genesis three. So, so yeah, I mean, I think we're, I think we're in, we're in a, in a place, especially in the, in the Western church where uh, there is a, a pretty serious threat of a kind of captivity taking place. And, Coupled with that threat is, is I think, uh, you know, kind of a cowardice in the part of people who have orthodox, who have orthodox understandings of the scriptures and of, and of the faith, faith being cowed because we're not used to, in this country anyway, we're not used to being so far in the minority that people not only just don't agree with us, but they think we're evil. 
I mean, that's been the norm for Christian Christians most throughout most of history, but, but in this country, it hasn't been. And so to switch in the matter of a generation from being, okay, we're, we live in a Judeo-Christian culture that basically affirms all of our values, even though people are nominally Christian, not really Christian, to all of a sudden, you people are wicked just for holding to what, just, just for believing what you've always believed. You people are evil. And we're going to shut you down. We're going to shut your schools and we're going to try and shut your churches and we're going to make what you're saying illegal. Um, that's such a major cultural shift in such a short yeah. time that oh, I, f- I feel like a lot of people who hold, who agree with us, who agree with, not us necessarily, with the, with, with the Orthodox Christian faith, classical Christian faith, um, are just too cowed to say anything. What, uh, how do you, how do you, how do you? How do you resist this? Yes. When the judge says that you as a parent have no right to stop your you know, 12-year-old daughter from from having some kind of mutilation done to her genitals so she can pretend she's a man. Yes. How do you, where do you even start? Well, but let's even go. I mean, what I tell people is like, let's just take this to its its fundamental problem because yes, it, it's manifesting currently in sort of this identity, um, sort of the, the fervor over various uh, quote-unquote sexual identities. But but it will it is not implausible at all. And you see people talk about this sort of in the ex-evangelical or world, this whole idea, the whole idea of God as father of judge of us all, like the whole idea of heaven and hell, of um, a transcendent afterlife of a um, of the final judgment, you know, that whole idea is considered to be fundamentally a form of child abuse and psychological warfare and quote unquote harmful. Um, And that is going to be for more and more the narrative, like whatever else you think, you know, however that extrapolates into various identities is, um, is an important one, particularly for individual parents who have, who have their own children and they're sort of wrestling with these. But in a general sense, we're going to see a pushback on the entire truth of, of, of God himself um, and the reality of heaven and hell and, and sin, death and the devil. And so we need to be prepared, um, not simply to to parrot back these truths, but to understand them as truth. And then, you know, and then um, uh, be, be prepared to continue to proclaim them because uh, because, you know, the entire biblical worldview, the entire world, the, the entire reality that within which we live is predicated upon the existence of sin, the reality of judgment, and the hope for redemption only found in Christ. Like that statement right there is offensive, harmful, and distressing, you know, to the world. And it has been since the first day it was preached. Remember when Peter, when Peter preached his first sermon at Pentecost, you people who just crucified this man, guess what? He's been raised and is now seated at the right hand of God and will come back again to judge the living and the dead. And it says they were very distressed. (laughs) What should we do? It's like, repent. And receive, be baptized and receive forgiveness in his name and the power of the Holy Spirit, said Peter. Well, you know, it is be a very distressing message to uh, the world that God in his wrath is coming to be the judge of the living and the dead. And yet that's not the only message, but that is part of the message. And that will will um, that's fundamentally what people are attacking, whether they explicitly know it or not, when they're having these um, somewhat peripheral arguments about whether they could stand up and have their rights or their harms or whatever, is that fundamentally the argument is, is there a God? Has he spoken? And if so, it's in our best interest to figure out who he is and what he had to say, you know, because that's fundamentally what's most important. Because, you know, it's like in Fight Club, that old sign, you know, you're coming to grips with the fact there might just be a God, but he doesn't 
doesn't like you. You know, I mean, that's what um, that's what some people are coming to grips with is like, it turns out I am actually afraid that there might be a God and um, and hopefully they go and search for the him. You know, I mean, that's that's what we hope. But but most people, as we uh, read uh, in Romans one, simply will suppress this obvious truth of God and instead embrace the lie, which is that um, and worship the creature rather than the creator and become some form of neo-gnostic, as you pointed out, Matt. Uh, which is we're seeing manifest all around us in the various appeals to the inner real person, um, you know, whatever my biology may or may not say about myself, I know who I really am because um, because I'm God. And that's what we'll continue to to come up against. And, you know, hopefully with is, as Peter says, gentleness and respect and, you know, um, let the law of, of God provoke wrath and we can be as try to get out of the way as much as possible. But but that's really um, that's increasingly more difficult. And in, in a way that I don't think I think we could have imagined perhaps 20 years ago, but I don't think anyone in, would have put money on it. But now, um, <laughs> now we're now we're here. So there we have it. I said uh, I preached through first Corinthians oh, several years, a long, long time ago. But I remember the first the opening sections of first Corinthians and preaching through that and, and studying you know, kind of Greek culture at the time and, and how Corinth was kind of this hub for traveling philosophers who had come through. And, you know, philosophy as, as you know, on a popular level then was a bit like, you know, Oprah now, like, here's how you can live a better life. Here's how, how you can, how you can harness uh, this or that technique and, and make yourself. Yeah, it was like goop. It was like that yeah, whole, that whole like It really was. Yeah. And, 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 and so, you know, into that context where everyone's looking for a, a new and better way to be a new and better you, Paul comes in and says, oh, no, you, you, not, things are so bad that not only can you not do anything to improve yourself, right. but God had to die. God That's had right. to send his son to, you are that bad. There's like nothing. By the, by the power of the foolishness with what we <laughs> right. preach. Right, cross, right, right. He says. Right. I mean, and, that, and so that was, and of course it was offensive. And, 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 and you know, I, I, I don't want to change subjects dramatically, but, but listen, the reading, I just read an re, article that was put out a couple of days ago by Peter Valk and of the gay Anglican movement. And he's insistent, you know, that, that uh, that you know that there's something good in there uh, within the, the the real desire for the good uh, male male on male friendship is what can be restored and renewed and redeemed. You know, uh, no, <laughs> I'm, I'm, no, you you're you're trying you're trying you're tr- you're still trying to save yourself, man. Uh, you can't you can't do that. Just confess your sin. Confess that you are in essentially sinful. Just like me, and that you have to have the cross and the cross alone because you Amen. because you are not going to you are not going to be able to uh, you know redeem that. Um, you you can't. Uh, there's aspects of me that I can't redeem. That's why I'm a Christian because because I need Jesus. Well, and that's fundamentally what again, like I said before, what we're going to end up running against because the progressive liberal church has for over a century now tried to take away every possible offensive doctrine or idea from the church and make it more palatable to to the world to the extent where, you know, you even have some churches um, arguing for, you know, well, there's there's a church, I think it, it may have been Bishop Rohr's church, but it, it may not have been, but there was a Lutheran church out in, um, an ELCA church out in San Francisco that had an ISIS worship uh, day, and they had a statue to ISIS, and so they like bowed to the bowed to the altar, and then they turned and bowed to the sun 
and God or something. And you just can't make this up. But, you know, they've tried and tried and tried. But at the end of the day, even the existence of a God um, is going to be offensive to um, to people who consider themselves their own God. And so this is what we have seen is that we're going to that, you know, you can keep trying to make it more palatable and we see where that's going. I mean, it's it's killing every uh, church that even even makes one step in that direction. But at the same time, we'll proclaim the glory of God. I mean, we will we will be without excuse. And in that world of people without excuse, the preachers will continue to preach and the sinners will continue to be drawn by the power of the spirit to just what Peter promised, baptism and the forgiveness of your sins by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, you know, I don't I sort of, you know, I've told people before, like I we always think we would have been better off being born 100 years before or after where we are. That seems to be a perennial uh, sort of idea for the for philosophically minded you know if only i was alive in the 1880s of course i would have been some sort of german peasant um you know sort of at the end of it would have been yoked up and breaking rocks or something is what i would have been so but you know this is where god's called us to live and it's incredibly clarifying you know whatever else we can say about all these discussions is that there is a clear divide between people who are unafraid of the of the sting of the law because they know the gospel and people who are trying to avoid any of its implications, i.e. its convicting nature, because they, for whatever reason, um, don't trust the the giver of this law. They don't trust, you know, I was watching an interview the other night about some of these contentious passages or some of these difficult passages. And the pastor that was being interviewed started off the whole thing by saying, the first thing that Christians have to do when coming up against passages like this is understand that God is good and that he has given this to our, our edification as we hear, you know, for re- rebuking, teaching and training in all righteousness. Um, you know, was that Titus, uh, Paul says? And so and that's where we begin. And so if God said, you know, male and female, he created them. He said um, variety of all sorts of other things. Obviously, we can we can by the power of the spirit and in light of his crucified and risen son on our behalf, trust him and and work through what he says. And I think that's what the divide is going to continue to be uh, amongst people for whom that is a self-evident truth and people who are continuing to to reject that in some some measure. I think it's coincidental that we talked a little bit about eunuchs during this episode, because when Jesus talks about cutting off the member that is causing you to sin, he is actually building an argument, which he will later locate sin in the heart. And if one were to truly cut out the part of you that is causing you to sin, you would eventually, your eyes would be gone and your ears and your members but you'd also have to cut out your heart and no one can live without a heart. And so in Christ, we are taken to the cross and killed and raised to new life. And this is the only way in which we can have redemption and eternal life with our father in heaven. That's my little attempt to wrap up this wide ranging conversation about eunuchs and uh, transgenderism and ultimately the gospel, because the only good news we have is a new heart given us on account of and in Christ Jesus. 
that is all the time we have this week. Thank you so much, as always, for listening. If you want to keep the conversation going, we hope you'll do so, that you'll be in touch with us. You can rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Send us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com or join the Anglicans for the Gospel Facebook group. Thank you, as always, to Matt Kennedy and to J.D. Koch. I'm Nick Lannon, and we will be back, God willing, next week. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. Oh,